everybody, and welcome to the Movie Spiel. I'm Alex. I'm Ryan. We're back for another edition. In fact, this is part of our double feature, the opening release. Uh, it's like Grindhouse, Ryan. That's that's really what this is. We're we're it's exactly like Grindhouse. It's that's one hundred percent what this is. We are the Grindhouse of movie podcast. God, don't 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 put us on that. Place. I've never actually seen the Grindhouse double feature. I just like making fun of it because I remember thinking in high school when I worked at the video store. I remember thinking how ridiculous Grindhouse looked. Oh, it's awesome. Is it? I- I think it's great, and I love Planet Terror. But that's the thing. the The thing that surprised me the most um, watching that is that I watched them both, and I liked Planet Terror, which is um, Robert Rodriguez's mm-hmm. one. I liked Planet Terror better than I liked uh, um, Death Proof. Yeah, see, I just like making judgments off of trailers and movie posters, and being like, "Oh, that looks really stupid." Now, of course, this is different because my opinion on Quentin Tarantino has taken a whole one eighty in the last. 13 or 14 years Mm -hmm. since the double feature came out. I refused to see it back then because I was like, Quentin Tarantino's overrated. Oh, my God. Me, Mr. Video Store guy, right? I know, real edgelord type stuff. And, of course, now I'm like, wow, Inglorious Bastards was really good. And it made me go back and rewatch a lot of Quentin's work. And there are still some of his things I haven't seen, but, you know, I'm getting through it. That's great. Yeah, I'll get through his whole filmography at some Uh point. There's always something great to appreciate about any of his his work, even, even Death Proof. Yeah. Very, very talented. Anyway, we are, as part of our double feature, we're doing best film endings, movie endings, or our favorite, really, is the more accurate way of saying it. We're going to go through our top five each favorite movie endings. So what we kind of wanted to do is uh, we're going to recap um, recap everything, and we really kind of wanted to talk about our process before we get into our actual list here. Yeah, short discussion about, because I think you and I probably have different ways that we categorized, A, what an ending actually is, yeah. and then B, how do we connect with an ending? Because... There are a lot of great endings that didn't make either of our lists. And, and, you know, again, I didn't even think about Ryan's number one, but for very different reasons. And Ryan's number one is absolutely iconic. For the record, I think so is my number one. They're both Mm -hmm. these absolutely iconic endings, and neither one appear on these lists. So I I have a a couple of of thoughts, and I'm kind of curious to hear your, your take on them. But the big thing for me on how I viewed what makes a really great ending. So I had a, I had a couple of, of areas that I, I was, I didn't really do a formal grading process, but I at least, well, I wanted like, you know, did you check the box? And so right. I went through catharsis, okay. resolution, intrigue, and then the holistic product. So obviously, again, we talked about it during our, our first act of this double feature, uh, you know, how some films might have this really great third act, but it's part of a, a larger film that's not quite as strong. I think Rogue One is a great example of that, where the third act is very exciting, and it's really, really uh, uh, very, very beautifully shot and very mm-hmm. well put together, mm-hmm. and it looks great. It doesn't really work on an emotional level for me because I just wasn't that invested in acts number one or number two. Fair enough. Um, and so for me, Rogue One, while it has a marvelous third act, and I actually think an ending that is is worthy of the film itself as a holistic product didn't do it for me. So I needed, at bare minimum, I think these five films it needed to be a big kind of holistic product. Second, you know, so catharsis and resolution kind of go hand in hand for me, but so catharsis is, for me... Did we successfully, after all the tension was built up, how did we relieve that tension? Who does the best at relieving that tension? And there's a clear reason why my number one is number one. I feel that the the ending for uh, my number one almost is a direct inspiration for the ending of the first Star Wars film, if that mm-hmm. doesn't spoil what my number one is going to be, sure. uh, A New Hope. Sure. Um, and, and then on top of that, so Resolution is part of that process as well. But resolution and intrigue kind of go hand in hand because the other thing is, is that is an ending, is this such a good ending, right? Like, you know, it hits, checks all those boxes, and yet you still 
would be willing to continue watching the film even after it ends. Mm-hmm. Is it one of those films where you either say to yourself, oh my God, I want to rewatch that right now, yep. or I wish there was a sequel that I could go to right now? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of how I looked at it, and then I'm going to introduce uh, in a little bit, I'm going to talk about what I'm jokingly referring to as the Sorkin scale. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's just get into that. You, oh, you want to talk about the Sorkin scale? I want to scale? know what your Sorkin scale is. So, I, I, not really a numerical scale, but, scale, but if we were going to talk about the Sorkin scale, so Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin, I think, is one of the most gifted writers in Hollywood. I also think that he is like the equivalent of a 1990s power hitter in baseball, right? Yeah. Like, he's swinging for the fences, and mm-hmm. if he misses, he is going to miss so wildly. Mm-hmm. And he's done that multiple times, particularly actually on the television side of things. There have been some of his films that he has written that have not aged as well, and even still, I think a film like A Few Good Men has probably aged better than Studio 60, which wasn't that well-received at the time, or The Newsroom, which has a lot of problems um, for all of its successes, which are not that many. It has a ton of problems that outweigh it. And so the reason I think it has so much trouble on the TV side, and I know we're kind of merging TV and film here, but from an ending perspective, Mm -hmm. Sorkin has this um, sort of element of, of... cheesiness, if you will. Yeah. A lot of it you notice in The West Wing or a film like The American President that he wrote, a film by that was marvelously reviewed at the time. I think mm-hmm. it was the second time that Sorkin and Rob Reiner worked together. Yeah. And I re- recently we rewatched The American President and I found myself thinking to myself how cringeworthy this film is. Sure. It la- really lacks the nuance that A Few Good Men had in 1992, I think it was. Yeah. And A Few Good Men has its moments of cringe, but it also has all these other different interesting divergent viewpoints. It doesn't definitively say that one person is right or wrong in the same way that the American president very clearly sets the sides, right? right? So for me, the Sorkin scale is what side of the cringe factor are you on? So are you the least cringe possible, which is the ending of The Social Network, right? where it's very robotic and it's kind of poking fun at Mark Zuckerberg, and honestly, it's probably the most cynical ending of any Aaron Sorkin film that I can think of is is the ending of The Social Network. In almost every other film, in, in Moneyball, in A Few Good Men, in um, uh, Steve Jobs. So there's there's not as much cynicism, a little more of that sort of feel-good, you kind of get that, that Capra-esque Hollywood ending. But to me, The Social Network is the one that it's definitely got the least amount of cringe and cheese to it. And then on the far end of the spectrum is The American President, mm-hmm. which ends with that wildly ridiculous press conference Michael Douglas as the president. And I would say the newsroom, uh, there are several newsroom type of of episodes that fall into that, wow, this is so cringe, you have not earned anything this cheesy. So to me, that's the Sorkin scale. And I think if you can find yourself closer to the middle of that scale, you're in good shape. The question, though, is, and this is where you're kind of looking at this, think of it like a graph, the more you earn it, the more cheesy that you can get. So you're allowed to be cheesy, right? If you actually, you're allowed to have some cheese, all right. If you make a decent sandwich, right? Okay. If you earn it, if you earn it, if you earn it, and, earn and that, earn that shit. We we talked about it a lot last time. What earning it was in mm-hmm. these saga finales, which sure. is a different because you're wrapping up a much larger thing. Yeah. So you have to earn it in just two hours, or yeah. in modern film standards, two and a half hours. Sure. Some of my endings are are very cheesy. Some of them are closer to that social network, more cynical ending. So sure, I don't like to think of any of mine as cheesy uh and you're in the definition of cheese really it's like like i don't want to talk too much about tv but uh that's the thing with with aaron sorkin and especially when he does tv i feel like he gets a little bit too i 
I'm not I'm not going to say Aaron Sorkin is overrated. Aaron Sorkin knows how good he is. So when he's writing something, he knows that he can that's that whole cheese thing, that cheese factor. He can get away with a whole lot of that. And it doesn't matter because his dialogue is so quick and witty and boom, 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 boom. It, it is – nobody really can write like him. Well, so so what is – how did you wind up defining My five? how you chose your endings? Personal favorites. I didn't I didn't break it down in, in an academic uh, way that you did. Generally, it's personal favorites. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's like, well, how cool would I be if I made it this? But then you really do have to think. Like, there's a lot of movies that have nothing endings. Mm-hmm. Like, they just – they, they end, and then there's 15 minutes of bullshit, and then it's like, oh, okay. There are two that stand out to me. Okay. Uh, and the funny thing is we talked about one of them last week, and I kind of ragged on it, but I, I do agree with you that if you, again, we, you know, there's that ability to kind of suspend disbelief, turn off your brain a little bit. I think Star Trek Into Darkness is an enjoyable, well-constructed film with a lot of flaws that we talked about is mostly in the writing. Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, though, in particular... Uh, the ending is a, as you would kind of define it, sort of this nothing ending. Yeah. Kirk, who comes back to life or was temporarily dead, I, I don't know, it's a kind of a whole weird thing and a playoff of the original Wrath of Khan. But Kirk, he gives this bizarre speech about, I think it was about bravery, mm-hmm. but it's just the whole point is this is nothing speech that no one cares about at the end of Star Trek Into Darkness and it's so odd to me that this was what they chose as the end. It was him, like, lecturing Starfleet. I feel like it was supposed to be, look how far James Kirk has come because he was sort of the rogue and the renegade and the yeah. bad student in the first one. Yeah. But it doesn't really work for me because it doesn't feel like he really learned anything throughout those two films other than, other than yeah, he makes this big sacrifice, right? And he, you know, yeah. he, I guess he has to learn the lesson about no-win scenarios. Sure. But then he still comes back to life. Well, yeah, of course. He's so, Chris Pine. So that was, I would give that that would be that would be that'd be one of my uh, uh, you know kind of a nothing ending a bad ending I really didn't like the ending of X Men First Class and then the last stupid shot of this movie is them rescuing Emma Frost who no one cares about mm-hmm. what why is that the last shot and, and the and the worst thing is I know I shouldn't judge it for Days of Future Past yeah but in Days of Future Past Emma Frost is dead she's gone gone how weird is that that they bring back like every freaking X Man and you know any mutant in that movie, mm-hmm. and then Emma Frost now. It's just her, January Jones, a photo of January Jones that says, like, terminated or, or Some something. Shit. But, no, so, actually, I do have a nothing uh, I do have a nothing ending. I have a really bad ending, and it's a nothing ending. Okay. It annoys me. Um, I recently rewatched Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, the very first one, the okay. one that set the, set, the, set the scene, set the stage for all these other Pirates movies that no one gives a shit about anymore. And, um, you know, Johnny Depp is fun as hell in it. Based his performance off Keith Richards, which is so inspired and so funny. Uh, he's great. That movie is long as hell, and it ends, like, three times. You know, it's it's just confusing. And then uh, he gets his ship, and then he's like, bring me that horizon. And then it's just, like, lingers on him, and he wait, makes some weird like this weird limerick that was used earlier in the or some song that he sings to himself and it's just i don't know the movie should have just fucking ended like 20 minutes before it did it's just weird to me mm-hmm. anyway that's that's my nothing ending i just don't understand that whole movie could get could go for like a half hour being chopped out of it and then i remember watching the sequels and they ended terribly too fuck Fuck Pirates of the Caribbean. Those movies are just overrated. They're bloated. They're long. I mean, as yeah, shit. they're 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 literally theme park rides that were turned into right, movies. And, but, and what was the second one? Was it? Um, oh, 
dead man's dead chest. man's chest, and it's dark as shit, and it's too. It's literally two Way hours and forty long. minutes or some shit. And then yeah. It, then it's just burnt. And I was actually, I felt kind of gypped. I just felt like I sat there through a bunch of bloated nonsense. Mm-hmm. Well, we should probably move on to our endings. Let's do this. Let's do. It. I'll, uh, if it's okay, I'll, I'll do the honors. I'll start. Right, my pleasure. Thank you. So my number five greatest and en- movie ending of all time is Up. Russell, for assisting the elderly and for performing above and beyond the call of duty, I would like to award you the highest honor I can bestow, the Ellie Badge. Wow. I love this choice, Ryan. Yes, uh, I think everybody... Everybody has an up story, if you've seen it, especially those of you that saw it in the theater back in 2009. I uh, I went on a whim with some friends, uh, didn't really, like the movie movie stars in 10 minutes, we'll go see up. Okay, sure, cool. Pixar, let's do this. I'm, I'm all about it. Wally was, uh, though I think, the one before it. Yeah. And, or, and R- Wally and Ratatouille, and they're both fantastic. Yeah. And it's cool that I could just go with my friends when I was in college, and it's just like, let's just go see this movie, because Pixar makes stuff for kids. But especially by the mid-2000s, Pixar was making stuff for everybody. Everybody can get something really great, especially adults. They pull in everything. Those movies are hard. They're so good. And Up caught everybody by surprise with how fucking real it is, how just emotionally gut-wrenching it is, with the whole story of, uh, of uh, Ellie and Carl and their life together and her dying. You know, that's in the first, like, ten minutes. And then it's this... In- insane just just this really huge um adventure that the old guy carl goes on with with russell i mean it's fantastical with the balloons lifting the house up and everything they go through this giant adventure carl's annoyed the entire time because but this kid's trying to earn this badge by helping the elderly the kid has dad issues he doesn't have a dad the implication and so i actually just rewatched up oh, very so recently good. so i love that you picked this uh-huh. so what i thought what was so interesting about up is that the implication that pixar kind of um tiptoes around but i think especially as the older you are the more you realize it the father has a new family yep but it seems like he's kind of ashamed of his son from his first marriage yes uh, i think that's sort of the implication is that he doesn't really like this kid yeah. and that's why i think what's interesting is it's sort of a um, a non-traditional parenting tale yeah. it's sort of a grandfather or or grandparent grandchild story uh-huh. i love the fact that they centered the main character is an elderly man yeah and it's an elderly man who could ne- you know his wife couldn't have children mm-hmm. and so they you know he just lived a, he you know, he always he he was the balloon guy at a zoo that his wife worked at too, and that was what they did together. And he, uh, you know, he's. I feel like that adventure was still something that he needed to have. Is is to, to for him to become a self actualized person. You know, he wanted to go down and and live in this live in. Uh, what is it? The falls. Well, she wanted that. She wanted that, and, but he and also he, did too. And I think for him, it was about like yeah, he was he was sort of a pseudo adventurer. She right. was the real adventurer. Yes. But they never, you know, and that's one of the beautiful things about the film, right? Uh-huh. Is that they don't, like, life got in the way of them realizing yep. their their goals, mm-hmm. you know? And so this is his mm-hmm. way of paying tribute to yep. her. And then at the end, you know, he, obviously, like, things, lessons are learned and people come together and all this. And, you know, uh, Russell doesn't have, you know, he has an absentee dad, but, you know, he's at this award ceremony, the, the, the button or the pin that he's supposed to get. And, uh, you know, all the other kids are there with, with their dads and then Carl comes in and gives him the hi- I'm going to fucking cry thinking about it. It gives him the highest honor that he knows. It's a pin that Ellie gave him when they were children 
and it's this little grape soda pin. And mm-hmm. God. What, for, for to actually get into your top five for you, was it the emotional impact of the ending? Was it the way that it wrapped up all of these different... What about the ending in particular really made you kind of kind of say this is what this is a step above everything else this is the first movie that really hit me i feel like this is the first movie that really it was a gut punch and it's a kids movie essentially air quote Mm -hmm. it is a kids movie and it absolutely wrecked me wrecked me Mm -hmm. i don't personally relate to it at all i don't think a lot i mean a lot of people do but i don't you know but there are a lot of non-traditional family units out there. yes there there are and i feel like that's a really really good point to make is that this movie actually um i mean yeah i have a broken home basically you know i've got my parents split whatever but as far as that goes i didn't necessarily relate to it i just empath i I feel like i just empathize so well with it though uh just i don't know i I just love the ending yeah and we were you were asking me earlier about my my thought process this is a little bit of alchemy right like that's the beauty of endings you know because you'd never know how it's going to relate to someone so it's it this is alchemy i'm not i'm asking you for some sort of scientific process but i also know intrinsically i'm asking you a loaded question that is almost unanswerable right and i think it's just i think this movie just surprised me i think it surprised literally everybody who's seen it i don't know anybody who doesn't like up if you don't like up just get yourself get your head checked jeez this movie's so great and it it surprised me more than any more than any pixar movie i'd ever seen and i was really blown away you know uh obviously toy story when i was a kid but like you know the incredibles um, just, just, just that, Incredibles one and two are fantastic. Yeah, they're they're great films. I will say though, I think you you make a fair point that you know if you were actually gonna put Up and the Incredibles side by side, there's uh-huh. no question which one is the better ending. Right, but Up is so I'm sorry, Incredibles is so fun too. But right. like, uh, and then there was um, there there was uh, Wally, which just the the whole first part of that movie is essentially a silent movie with with Lovey and Rose by uh by, by Louis Armstrong, and then Ratatouille. Holy shit, that floored me too. And I'm yeah. like, these movies are so good. And then Up took it all the way up. To, it, it took it to the, just, I guess it just took it to the highest possible level it could. And it became the second animated movie in history to be nominated for the Best Picture Academy yeah. Award. Those are actually, what, oh, by the way, real quick, because mm-hmm. I will say those three films, that was my, that's my golden age of Pixar, even mm-hmm. though I know most people are Toy Story people. I love Toy Story. Those mm-hmm. three films, though, are my three favorite. Yeah. So my number five is actually my favorite uh, second favorite film of all time. It is a 2006 film by the amazing director Alfonso Cuarón, probably one of the three best directors currently working in Hollywood, along with James Mangold and the Coen Brothers. I have to go in in so many ways with this film. There are so many aspects of this ending that I love, but one of the main reasons that it makes the list is, of course, what we talked about earlier about the the necessity of a good holistic story. And I think from start to finish, Children of Men holds up extremely well. Dylan. Huh? I'll call my baby Dylan. It's a girl's name too. And there's so much catharsis throughout that third act. There's a ton of catharsis, but the actual resolution does not occur until really the final minute to two minutes of the film, which I think you'll notice throughout our lists that, again, up the ending occurs maybe five to eight minutes before. There's a little, maybe not quite as long, but but up's resolution is, is towards the end there. Yeah. 
But there are some films here where the resolution is much earlier in the process. Right. Well, Children of Men, the resolution of Children of Men, after all this work that Theo goes through, and I, I did this uh, in my history and film class in high school, which was an awesome, awesome class that we took. You know, we were supposed to go through sort of the, the hypothesis of the class was how does this relate to, you know, the world as it, as it was built in. Mm-hmm. And I mean the real-life world that it was built into. And, of course, at the time, you have the Bush administration and you have rising uh, autocracy mm-hmm. in, in the United States government, uh, further centralization of power, um, and you have the war on terror yeah. and, and all sorts of other things going on. Well, so the beauty of, of Children of Men for me is that it, it encapsulates a lot of those things then projects out into a future timeline that at this point is starting to look better than the timeline we currently have, but also is the most similar to the timeline that we currently have. You see immigrants in cages in Children of Men. One of the big things that's resolved in the final minute of the film, the flu pandemic of 2009 in Children of Men timeline claims the life of Theo and Julian's child, Dylan. Yeah. So there's a lot of a, a lot of prescience, and I think Alfonso Cuarón did a really great job of crafting this world where none of it looks too futuristic, but you can tell no. it's in the future. Uh-huh. Like the cars don't look super futuristic, but no. they have like holographic readouts. Yeah. So it's like the world's gone bad, and most technology there's no reason for it to really go forward. But there's some things that little things you notice, like the speedometer is a hologram. Yes. Little things like that. on the, on the right, screen and Right, stuff. and I really liked that. I love that aspect of Children of Men. But so mm-hmm. to get to the ending, and the reason why I love this ending, so besides the fact that the third act is fucking awesome and totally oh, yeah. earned as we're building through these characters uh-huh. and the sacrifices of certain characters, Michael Caine's character oh, offers yeah. a great sacrifice. The midwife, that. too. Yeah. She, yeah. she creates a diversion because of the, the um, what's her face, key. Right, it's starting to have contractions. contractions. Yeah. Oh, and, my God. And, there, and that's supposed to be the Abu Ghraib sort of parallel. Yeah, it, that's, that I, and I got it from, point. yes, and I, and I got that as like a, I don't want to say Nazi or whatever. Yeah, the, the basically, yeah, the checkpoint, basically. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, she makes a scene to keep the attention away from key, and then she's taken off the bus. You see her. You don't even follow her. That's the that's such a brilliant thing about Alfonso Cuarón and his filmmaking. The movie, first first of all, is a, it's a technical wonder. Yeah. The the tracking shots. Mm-hmm. There's a YouTube video you can watch about the whole uh the the whole scene inside the car when they're being chased by the by like the riders or whoever they are with the the, the bike and then the oh, uh, Julian Morgan uh, yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah. And all the, the whole there's that whole scene in the car where it's just Charlie Hunnam is one of the is, oh, Charlie yeah. Hunnam's nuts in yeah. that. And it took me yeah. forever to figure out that was him. He's too. my fucking cousin. He's so great, but uh, and he's my evil my as great shit. Charlie Hunnam acts uh, like, you know impersonation there. Fuck that guy in that right. movie. He's a great actor. Anywho, the midwife is um and I forget her name, but okay, so she's taken, you know, get her out of here, blah blah. blah. They take her out. You don't follow her. The camera doesn't follow her. The camera just pans back over to uh, looking out the bus, basically. Yeah. And you see her being dragged over, put on her knees, a hood is thrown yep. over her head, and the bus goes. And yep. that's it. And you just assume she was executed. There, and, there, the, and there's nothing else to assume because you actually see it's implied that she's executed because you see a line of bodies. Yeah. As the bus goes on, it's yeah. a brilliant shot. Holy shit! But so, so you think about so this is everything that they were threatened with, every danger that they faced. Literally, no allies, and the only ally they the only allies they can count on are dead at this point. Yeah. 
and the only ally left that they can theoretically count on, no one knows if it's real or not. So there's a huge element of faith in this film, but at this point, the world is so shitty, they almost have no choice but to fall into this level of faith. And the beautiful thing is, it's not really an allegory for religion, it's just an allegory for the concept of faith. Like, they're, they, they're, at no point do they suggest putting faith above all else. Right. They Their faith is in Julian, because Julian's the one who put this plan together, and Julian is the one who knows that the boat, the tomorrow, is real. So anyway, just to get to the ending aspect of this, you know, you have this beautiful, beautiful tracking shot. The ending, though, we, you know, we didn't see Theo get shot, even though you sort of know when it happens. Again, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor's character who shot him. But the end of the film, they're on the boat, they finally made it, the landlady yeah. who helps them escape won't go with them. So again, every ally is implied to be dead at this point. The whole Bex Hill is being is being bombed by, you know, fighter jets. They get out into the water. They're at the buoy. And the thing is that Theo is dying. He is mm-hmm. bleeding and he's talking to Key and in that moment, we still don't know where the boat is. They do not know if they're going to be rescued, but what Key says in that moment, she resolves one of the biggest things for Theo, which is he still has that guilt over yeah. the loss of his his son, uh-huh. and Key names her daughter Dylan. And it's a really beautiful moment because it's a tribute to everything that Theo did to help Key make it to this moment in the first place. And then he dies. Exactly. Spoiler it's, alert. Yeah. He dies. <laughs> it's a bad ending. And about 15 seconds after he dies, mm-hmm. Key yells out, Theo the boat, Theo the boat, because she can see it. And then you hear this really, really great, the audio kind of fades out and it fades into like a children's choir singing and you see the boat, the tomorrow, they're pointing at something which is assumed to be key mm-hmm. and we go to black, Children of Men comes on the screen and then John Lennon's like a B-side version of um, Bring on the Lucy. It's really, really good too because it's a- it's I'll a, to listen to it. It's really good. Uh-huh. That whole soundtrack's amazing yeah. by the way. I always looked at that ending as being among the more perfect endings. It's pretty close to perfect. I don't know, you know, maybe it would have been nice if Theo could have seen the boat, but that's sort of the point, right? At that point, I think his faith has been fulfilled. They got to that point. Right. I think he he feels like he's done everything he can to get there. It's now on the tomorrow and and the human project to take it from there. So I I think that the Children of Men checks off virtually every single box. And I think the beauty, the intrigue behind Children of Men is every time I watch it, I want to rewatch it. But I'm also kind of curious about what is going to happen next is is the birth of this child. Like the implication is that the birth of this child has the maybe the ability to sort of unify the human race because the human race no longer brings children into the world and in a world without children. And in fact, it was uh, Miriam, the midwife, who yeah. says that, you know, as the as the sound of the playgrounds faded, I'm paraphrasing, we became worse. And, you know, it's kind of amazing what happens in a world without children's voices. Yes. So the implication is that this child has the ability to really change things if... Not necessarily that it's the Jesus figure, but if they can figure out why Key got pregnant and no one else can. So there is a ton of intrigue that makes you want to want more, there to mm-hmm. be more. So it ends at the right time. Alfonso Cuaron, by the way, is very good about, maybe other than Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, he's very good about knowing when to end his films. He doesn't, he does not linger. Yes, he doesn't. But I've not seen Roma, so I really can't say for yeah, everything I'm, that he's I'm, ever yeah. made. But, but no, I, I, he's, you're right. He doesn't linger. He just gets the shit done. Right. Yes. So, my number four pick is There Will Be Blood. Drain dry. I'm so sorry. If, if you have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, and I have a straw, there it is. That's a straw, you see. Watch it. 
my straw reaches across the room and starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. I love this movie so much. Uh, I, I saw it in the theater and I was just blown. I was just blown away. Obviously, Daniel Day Lewis's performance is insane, but the whole movie's—it's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. They're very paced, for whatever, however you want to take that, uh, be it Magnolia or be it. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, the first ten minutes of the film shit. feels like a silent. Like oh, a, it is. Yeah, it's great. And Johnny uh, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, the the guitar player, he's uh, the um, composer for the movie too, which is awesome. So it's a it's a slow burn all the way up to its explosion at the end. And this movie also, you know, we we're talking about how Alfonso Cuarón, uh, you know, just ends his movies. Paul Thomas Anderson, by his own admission, has a bat has a hard time ending his movies. A lot of his movies end either ambiguously or in a, in a very strange, odd way. This one really, it's not like a common type of thing, but it does. When it ends, it ends, <laughs> and it's very literal too. So uh, yeah, and despite yes, so if is. you've seen the movie, so he's a prospector in the, at the turn of the 20th century into the you know the, the early 1900s uh, in California, and he, he's an oil prospector. I'm an oil man. <laughs> Uh, and despite all his success and wealth, at the end of the movie, he's it's 1927. He's a alcoholic recluse. You know, he, he he basically burns every bridge he ever had. You know, and he he even says in the movie he has a competition in him. He hates most people. It that's just how he that's just how he lives. He even his own son, who really isn't his son, you know, tells him to fuck off because he wants to basically dissolve his partnership with his dad so he's an alcoholic recluse and he's living up to his whole hating most people thing and then there's the conversation with eli at the end who uh is a is a preacher you know a very an evangelical preacher and he's doing radio and it's 1927 so the economy is taking a pretty bad turn and he's in a bad way and um he has like this this kind of tug of war relationship with Daniel over the years, but he still considers Daniel Plainview to be a friend. They worked together for such a long time, and he wants uh, to get he wants um, Daniel Plainview to buy this land from him so to so they can get some money to for their church and this and that. And it's obvious as the movie goes on how how just done with you know with Eli he how done he is with Eli. And uh, he's, you know, he tells him, he, you know, he'll buy up the bandy tract is what it's called, the, the bandy ranch. He'll buy it up if, he, if Eli says, <laughs> and he's a preacher, if he renounces his faith in God, he has to say, I'm a false prophet, God is a superstition, and makes him say it over and over, makes him yell it. This is how hard up for cash <laughs> Eli is. And then just to be a fucking evil person, Daniel Plainview is just like, it's gone. Your brother Paul, your twin brother Paul, he already he already drilled it up. He, he, I think they use uh, they don't say it in the movie. Was it slant mining or slant? Yeah, something? I, I think sl that is the correct the slant. Term. So they basically yeah. and he explains it perfectly in the very iconic, you know, I I drink your milkshake. <laughs> if you have a milkshake, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We're, we, he he does it so he explains it so well. I'm sorry that scene is that scene has been iconic. That scene was iconic before I saw the movie. That's it's, the funny thing. Right, like, everybody kind of knew about it. Everyone still knew it's it. It's fucking amazing, and uh, you know, it's just the spit and the sweat. Just Daniel Day Lewis is just 
his face is like melting. Yeah. And he's just, they're just, I drank that up. And then, um, and then, cause he's a, he's a drunk. He just starts chasing and beating Eli down this, like this bowling alley in his mansion. Just, and then he takes a pin and finally just fucking kills Eli. And Eli's laying there. And this is actually, I think the first point in the movie where there's actual blood. There's, uh, you know, oil well explosions and different things in the movie, but you don't see any blood. You see a lot of oil, but he's laying there and, there's blood. Yeah. And then I know it's silly and childish to take it literally. No, I no, but I kind of like that. And and, and the it, ending is very literal. It is. And he goes and then his butler comes out. And he's like, I'm finished. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. I fucking love that. It's also I mean, there's also a, a point to be made that. So uh, a lot of the film, I feel like, is really about, you mm-hmm. know, capitalism and greed versus mm-hmm. obviously sort of the wild evangelical roots in the United States that yeah. took hold in yeah. a lot of very rural yeah. areas, yeah. even areas that started rural and became very urbanized. And certainly California is a great example of that. Um, and I think by the end of it, you're really looking at how it's a pretty major indictment of modern evangelism, uh, particularly televangelism. Yeah. Because greed eats, figuratively, but greed eats religion in this film because Eli essentially renounces his faith so that he doesn't have to be destitute anymore. Right. I'm probably missing the point entirely, but I, I just love that so. movie so much. What's your number four? Yeah. So my number four is actually Batman Begins, and oh. this is, you know, I'm big on blockbusters. I love me a good blockbuster. Now, that being said, even with my love of blockbusters, you know, a lot of blockbusters have kind of nothing endings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we kind of look at, like, an ending like Iron Man. If you think about it, the first Iron Man, which came out, only a couple years after Batman Begins, people hated that ending when it first came out. I love that ending. I thought it was awesome at the time. I just did not expect them to actually go through with it right. in the dark night. I never said thank you. And you'll never have to. So, yeah. so Batman Begins, though, I think, for one thing, Batman Begins gets a little bit of extra credit on my list because it's sort of the film that that begins the turnaround for a lot of franchises. Uh-huh. It reboots the iconic Batman character yep. in a really, really excellent way, mm-hmm. a very grounded way. Yep. You, know, you even have you know, Michael Caine, the, one of the best lines in the, in the movie is, the only thing that stopped me from calling the men in the white coats is when you said this wasn't about thrill-seeking. I think that that gets at sort of the heart of why Batman and why superheroes in general are often tough for us to digest and were certainly tough for us to digest in a really serious way mm-hmm. on screen for so long. It was tough for us to take these characters seriously. And even, you know, kind of the dark brooding 89 Burton Batman still devolves into camp and then ev- devolves into something even more ridiculous as mm-hmm. you have Val Kilmer and George Clooney and the Schumacher yeah. Batman films. And it devolves something well beyond camp and into outright, I mean, ridiculousness. Those films are ridiculous. Oh, they yeah. are They're insane. They're outrageous. Well, as Joel, Mo- Joel Schumacher said, they're just cartoons. Right. Batman begins begins to pull us out of the cartoonishness. Mm-hmm. Of, exactly. And and the thing is, DC has failed Warner Brothers. They have not found anything in their DCEU mm-hmm. that has ever come close. Wonder Woman could. Wonder yeah. Woman's got a pretty rough third act. That's it, actually it a does. good one. And I like Wonder Woman. I thought it was probably the... And I haven't seen Shazam. Shazam's great. But Wonder Woman, I thought, was the best of the ones that I had uh-huh. seen. And, and but, but that none was a of them, low bar to clear. But none of them have that... 
pull that yeah. Christopher Nolan has. Yeah. They, they, none of, I mean, like, they don't, like, I, w- I don't want to use the word gravitas, but I got to yeah. use the word gravitas. Right. Well, so yeah. what, where Christopher Nolan, I think Christopher Nolan, if, you know, kind of, we, we talked about the, the Sorkin scale earlier. I think what Nolan does so well is that with his films is that, first of all, his endings all have that element of kind of an earned cheesiness because Batman gives that kind of cheesy line where yeah. he says, uh, you know, because Commissioner Gordon says, you know, I never said thank you. And Batman says, and you'll never have to. And you'll never have to. But the thing is, like, that lo- <laughs> that that whole sequence works yeah. works really, really well. Uh-huh. It's not just that they earned that. It's that we actually believe in that mm-hmm. moment that this sort of altruistic billionaire, like, by all rights, fuck Bruce Wayne, right? Like, right. we get it. Like, you, your parents were murdered, but you're you're a billionaire. As, as Tom Wilkinson's mob boss points out to him, you're the prince of Gotham. You know, yeah. don't come to me with your anger. Yeah. You know, which is a great, great scene and a great sequence and, mm-hmm. and sort of a growing moment for Bruce Wayne. But we were able to, as the film goes on, we're able to kind of believe for a little bit that, you know what, as it turns out, like, he left behind his life as a billionaire to, to try and kind of understand what it was like outside the ma- the walls of of Wayne Manor yeah. and that even in fact tries to steal from his own company mm-hmm. and is put in prison for it. So there's an element to this Batman that is much much better realized than all the other Batmans. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But so by the time we get to the end of that film, we're we're already so enamored with this world that's been created and the sort of chain reaction of events that Batman's arrival in Gotham has has started and then mm-hmm. for that moment where you know, you know, things aren't great yet and we know that Batman's got so much more to do to to sort of save the city and and help the city and he foreshadows very appropriately that he's going to be this hero who knows that there this is going to be this is actually a thankless job and and that's one of the things I actually mm-hmm. liked about Batman the animated series arguably the best version of Batman is that he is very often mm-hmm. maligned by police there is you know that probably the biggest issue I have with Nolan's Batman is how closely he works with police mm-hmm. that's a little odd to me because Batman has often been sort of he is treated as a vigilante and in many ways he's treated as more the way he's treated in the Dark Knight Rises in the right. beginning of the film where police are after him now police are portrayed as sort of being kind of opportunistic and why they're after him right but in the animated series I, I felt like that Batman is the one we get on the on the top of the, the building there yeah and, basically you know. basically so and th- I thought it's set up it's set up the Dark Knight perfectly yeah the whole thing about um, Commissioner Gordon talking about escalation and mm-hmm. like you know we have Kevlar and they have armor piercing bullets and right this and that and then you, you know you have we use automatic semi-automatic so use automatics and all that and then you running around in a in a cape with a mask at night yeah you know? and he's like so take this guy the homicide robbery and yeah. all this stuff and it's and it like left it open it was like the joker and i remember leaving that movie and i'm like they're not actually going to redo the joker they can't they cannot fucking do it and there's not going to happen it's going to fail because honestly when i first saw batman begins i was like okay well this is a good movie i liked what they did with it and I still had a hard time rec- like bringing it into my into my because I love Batman. I love Batman so much, and I loved. Uh, I even when I was a kid, I even liked Batman Forever and Batman Returns, and it, it was campy. But I was ten. Who cares? So like, but you know, looking back on it, I still didn't. I had a hard time putting it above even Batman Returns, which actually I I love Batman Returns. Okay, so having Batman Begins is perfect. It's a perfect segue into number three, my number three, which is Avengers Infinity War. I told you. You die for that. You 
no movie in our lifetime has built more hype so successfully. One could argue that's, you know, The Force Awakens or uh, even the first Iron Man or The Dark Knight. But actually having all the heroes who, over the course of, you know, over a dozen movies, die (laughs) at the end. Like, they they lost the battle against Thanos. He won zaps them all, you know, blood and dust. But no, I thought I thought that just dusting everybody, you know, the whole lead up to it, the battle sequence was awesome. Everything that had been done in the in in the just in the MCU culminated very, very well in that one in in in, in Infinity War. And you know, it was the first time that any that I never heard the uh, the term event film, an event movie. Mm-hmm. They didn't even mention that for Star Wars, you know? Like, yeah, I don't... Re- I mean, sure, they did, but when I first heard the word event movie, it was about Infinity War. Mm-hmm. Infinity War's trailers leading up to it, and they, they... Marvel's notorious for not put... for, like, editing stuff and all of that, or straight up just complete misdirection. But, um... Leading right, up, Hulk, Hulk was in the trailer. That's right. And not in the movie. Wakanda, and yeah. totally not in it. So yeah. they just throw you off. But they know what to do to advertise it. But also, all of the things, like the open letter that the Russo brothers wrote about not spoiling the movie. So then it's like, well, I'm going in thinking, oh, well, Captain America's going to die. He's dead. That's it. Because he died in the comics that I knew about. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to, I thought he was going to actually eat it in um, Civil War, but he didn't. They totally took they took it in a different direction that I knew the source material to go to, which was, which was nice. And um, at least parts of it. God, I can't. I can't keep up with comics, man. But uh, uh, they all have too many, too yeah, many different timelines. There's too much, but they, they, but they all, they lost enough for everything to just be, just for everybody to really want to go and just, just be all in on Endgame. They did it perfectly. They did both movies perfectly. So uh, I'm curious though. So we talked about, you know, there are sort of these like five factors that, that for me that make up a great ending. Number one, the Sorkin scale, which I think is less a factor, less a factor and more of just sort of like a, a, an interesting waypoint for Uh like what, what is this ending? Uh And obviously in this case, this is more on the social network side of the, everyone dies. Everyone's dead. Right. It is, it is a grim, grim ending. So grim as hell. I think it definitely checks the box in terms of holistic product. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people who would argue Infinity War is the best Marvel film. I wouldn't say I wouldn't go that far, but it's certainly I, because you, it's hard to cram all that into one movie. They did it in two. They initially announced it as Infinity War Part One and Two, right? And then I'm glad they I'm glad they didn't. It's really hard to cram all that in there. But I know what you're gonna say. Well, it ta- clearly leaves a lot of intrigue because it does. Yeah. So that one's an easy check off che- checked box off. The question here for me is. Resolution uh-huh. and catharsis. No resolution. Mm-hmm. There was sort of. There's a resolution for Thanos. For the first time in a real superhero movie, in a big budget movie, the villain wins. There's no. That's not a resolution that people want. Mm-hmm. That's a resolution you get. Right. It is an actual resolution. It happens. It ends. You know what's it cost him? Everything. That's the resolution you get. But and there no, was really no chance of him losing after he got like. If you go back and watch the film, like there didn't seem like there was any doubt what was going to happen. Once he got the reality stone, it was done. Right, it was done. Yeah, time stone. That was just, everything else was just icing on it. But that reality, the reality stone, it really just. Well, no, I take it back. They really could have won when you break down that strategy that they had. The when they were fighting Thanos on Titan. If they kept him on Titan. If they kept him on Titan, they probably would have won. 
but you know, although on the other hand, Peter he had, Quill, but he already had the reality stone. But at that it didn't point. matter. They, they, Peter, you know, Mantis had her hand, had you know, was in his head, and oh god, that's so great. But then you knew Peter Quill was gonna fuck up. You know, you knew he was gonna, he was gonna let his emotions get because he's not, he's not Tony Stark. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's certainly not Doctor Strange. You know, he's going to have. He's gonna have some issues, and he and he doesn't know how to control himself, and he doesn't know how to control his anger, and he's he's just a giant he's, child. Uh, yeah, that's how he's exactly a big man child. He, so of course baby. he does that. So when yeah. I, I did hear some people complain, it's like, well, he knew what was at stake, and it's like, he just lost the love of his life. He's gonna go crazy. That was on brand for Peter Quill. All right, so the catharsis—that's the question. I None. Have. That's the thing. That's the coolest part about this. So your scale with catharsis, this throws that out the window. Mm-hmm. Is this cathartic? Hell no. Endgame's cathartic, but you needed this to to tee up for the endgame to hit freaking. That was dude. That was a hole in one, four hundred yards away. That was amazing. That, but you needed this. See, but this is why this is why I can't have Infinity War as much as I love the film. It's why I can't have it on my list, mm-hmm. and I feel almost guilty because in my honorable mention, which we haven't really talked about a ton yet, in my honorable mention was The Empire Strikes Back, and I feel like if you're going to compare two films from a different, very different eras, and obviously very different points in there, I mean, Infinity War was a buildup of literally a, a decade mm-hmm. of film, mm-hmm. and The Empire Strikes Back was. Three years, and at that point, the first film had already been resolved. Right, like it was returning. Like we, were, like it was a gift that we were even coming back to this universe in the first place. Exactly. So I, I I'm, I'm torn. There's, I'm no, but there's, yeah, and there's no the real catharsis. There's well, the questions left unanswered in yeah. Empire Strikes Back, in Infinity War. So those are some of the best endings of all time. And you've got, you know, you can, you can keep yourself to a rigid scale. No offense. Keep yourself to that if you want to, but I think the fact that it breaks that scale—that's—that's that's why I really like it. I didn't go in thinking about it that way, but I'm really glad you brought that scale up and brought your well, you brought your uh, your categories up. Me, I'm just being—I'm—I'm just—I—I I, I put a lot of thought into the list, right? I think I don't obviously did not put as much thought into it as you did, but that doesn't mean I don't care as much. But I'm just going by what hit me the fucking hardest, and that one got me. Right. So, I, and I will say this thing about the list is that. At the end of the day, all five of my endings, and really all the endings on my list, because I had something like 24 endings listed before I had to stop myself and say, let's try to narrow down. And this is, I I really think this is in many ways the theme of our podcast. It still was something that the first thing that occurred with each of these endings was I had an emotional connection with the ending. Yes. Because that's where it starts, right? That's the whole point of these moving pictures on screen. We're having an emotional connection with what we're watching, right? Right. Afterwards, I kind of deconstructed what I liked about each of these endings. So I don't know. That's that's why I, I like for me Infinity War. Like I know that each of my endings so far, there's probably been maybe just a little something that it's been missing, but it's never been totally missing something entirely. Uh-huh. Infinity War's lack of catharsis, okay, is probably that. That's the bridge too far for me. I, and I love the film. Uh-huh. I, I do. But well, okay. So I'm gonna take a wild guess. I'm probably wrong, but when we're looking at catharsis here. Mm-hmm. We're going to transition right into year number three. Right. And I'm willing to bet there's a lot of catharsis here for, for, for Blade Runner. You've done a man's job, sir. A ton. Okay. A massive metric shit ton. 
And there's a reason for that. I, I think Blade Runner hits and checks every one of these boxes. Uh -huh. uh, again, we're talking on the Sorkin scale. Scale. We're talking about on the darker end uh -huh. of the scale for sure. Uh -huh. It's a the ending is is dark as shit, especially if you take uh, Ridley Scott's suggestion behind what the ending really means. Right. That De Deckard is a replicant. And I wanna I want you to I want you to explain this too. I also didn't mean to steal your thunder by announcing your movie. That's okay. I apologize. But no, that's fine. But it's not just Blade Runner. You have to tell us, tell me and the listeners, which Blade Runner, because I know there's m plural. The final cut. So it's it's Blade Runner, the final cut. To me, that is the definitive edition. So when I first saw Blade Runner, I was not crazy about it, I, which a lot of people, it was not the best received film. It was a box office flop uh, in 1982 when it first came out. And this is Harrison Ford basically at the height of his powers between uh -huh. Star Wars and Indiana Jones. I think... What, 81 was, was right after Indiana Jones. So he had literally done in the span of two years Empire and Last Cruise, not Last Cruise, Empire and uh, Empire, Raiders, of the, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then Blade Runner. And Blade Runner is this huge flop at the time. Uh huh. So, and, and this is a great example of the studio system failing because the studio system really failed Blade Runner in so many ways. They added in this ridiculous, they wanted this, this is a neo noir film, but uh -huh. so they wanted to add in this. Harrison Ford voiceover track, narration track, and it's garbage. It really brings the film down. It takes you totally out of this sort of futuristic immersion that you develop, which is funny because it's, I think it's, what, November 2019? Yeah. And now it's, you know, here we are talking about this film that's this this nearly 40-year-old film, and it's it's 2020, and we're actually past the date of the film. Anyway, I, I see the final cut as the definitive version. You wouldn't get the catharsis from the other version, because I'm pretty sure the original version cuts out the unicorn dream. And the unicorn dream is what leads to the suspicion that Deckard may, in fact, be this very advanced replicant. And there are all sorts of hints throughout the film that he's a replicant. And I'm actually bothered by the fact that, A, they don't really resolve that in 2049. And, B, Harrison Ford doesn't think Deckard's a replicant. And the film's screenwriter also doesn't think that Deckard's a replicant. And then here's Ridley Scott saying, I left all these clues that Deckard's a replicant. And I'm personally on the side of... Deckard's a replicant, but that's that's fine. To me, what makes this so cathartic isn't that debate after, because I, I, as, as fun as that is, I don't need that. The catharsis is if you take it at face value in the moment that he has this dream, and in the final moment, he's left this unicorn origami, and it's sort of a warning to him. It's That's the way I take it. It's this ominous, ominous warning. Checks off every box, every box because it checks off First of all, we already know holistically this is an excellent film, an immersive film. It creates the intrigue because the film is essentially ending with a new adventure. And the adventure is escape to safety. And then the the resolution we'd already hit it at that point. That's really that's that's epilogue material, right? So that's the epilogue of the film is essentially them revealing that Deckard might be a replicant, he might be in danger. So Deckard and Rachel at the end there escaping is to me like that's the epilogue, right? Because we've already had, everything else has been resolved at that point. And even at the time of the film, we're not really asking ourselves if Deckard is a replicant. Yes, there are there are signs that he might be, but it's not the type of question that you're going to ask yourself. If the film ends before that, if the film just ends with him vowing to get her to safety, that's that's not going to raise the question of whether or not he's a replicant. It's the unicorn origami that makes us think, okay, all these other little clues now add up. And so all of a sudden, of course, you're immediately like, well, now I have to rewatch this film right now. And then the second part is, I would like to see what happens next. So it 100% checks 
all of those boxes. And the catharsis was, was we already got the catharsis out of Roy Batty anyway. Rucker Hour, may he rest in peace, mm -hmm. uh, giving an, an inspired performance as Roy Batty. I mean, this film is so ahead of its time in mm -hmm. 1982. So I watched it with Britney, and she thought it was weird as hell. I, I kind of thought it was going to be a bridge too far for her, but that's, you know, it is what it is. You, it's a bridge you, too far for a lot of people. Yeah. For the average moviegoer, and we're not trying to say we're better than you, uh, but I'm... <laughs> And I'm not going to say, like, I'm not going to... I don't see the humongous... I get why people like Blade Runner, but it's just never been my cup of tea. Right. So It is It is dark. Wildly influential on yes. sci-fi. I mean, George Lucas literally designed... Uh -huh. And I know he won't... I probably won't admit this, but he designed Episode Two's Coruscant almost entirely based off yeah. of... It looks to me uh -huh. like L.A. in Blade Runner. Yeah. Children of Men, in fact, in a funny way, which list is my number five on this list describes itself as being the anti-Blade Runner, exactly, which is, yeah. I think to me, still means they were heavily influenced by Blade Runner, mm -hmm. but what they didn't want to do was create this futuristic dystopia and do what everyone else does and try to copy Blade Runner, yeah. which creates this amazing immersion in the film. You know, the entire time, I'm loving the detail of Blade Runner. Yeah, and there's a lot to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful to look at. Yeah, considering it came out in 1982. Yeah, it still looks amazing. Uh -huh. I think the score is what actually sets it. Let's I think sense. the score. Yeah, I think it's great. I think okay. it does exactly no. what it needs to do in the context of. It makes me think of something so outside of of Earth, yet it's on Earth. I think that's sort of the whole point here is that we've crossed this sort of through the looking glass point here, mm -hmm. where, yeah, we're on Earth, but Earth isn't Earth anymore. It's no. it's just sort of this hollow shell and the people who live there are there not by their own choice uh -huh. the people who are trying to achieve a better life are kind of off living in the colonies right that's blade runner for me it's, it, it checks every single box it is weird as fuck and i will admit um, in a similar way and i think th the truth is if we're being honest with ourselves i think in some of the same reasons why infinity war makes your list there are mm -hmm. things outside of the film mm -hmm inevitably push us to put these films on the list. Mm -hmm. And for me, Blade Runner is everything that went into Ridley Scott eventually getting the movie out there that he actually wanted out there. Right. I'm not the world's biggest Ridley Scott fan. I'm not either. But I think Blade Runner is an outright masterpiece. I, I the, never the final heard... cut, particularly, uh -huh. is an outright masterpiece. So let's review really quickly our top five. So, so far for me, number five, Children of Men. Number four, Batman Begins. Number three, Blade Runner. And it's funny, even as I'm debating with myself, I kind of think I might want to move Children of Men up above Batman well, Begins. Well, you already, you already said it here, so too too late now, man. To, I, so I'm locked in stone. You're locked. Ah, wow. My number, it's recorded. It's on the internet. You're right. Number five. For me is up. Number four is There Will Be Blood. Number three is Infinity War. My number two is Inception. Hey guys! First of all, it's awesome to go see an original fucking movie for once. Uh, and this was 2010. Is that summer? You know, we went to see it, and I just remember, like, it, it just, the it was that, it brought in that sound, that boom sound, and it, you know, all that shit. But 
it was fun as hell. Still is. I watched it again just recently, and it's just, you know, I have a projector in my basement, so I watch it on a big-ass screen, and I watch it loud. And that movie's, oh my god, it's just so engrossing. It is it is the definition of a rewatchable movie. I can pick it up at any point mm-hmm. and just go with it. At the end of the movie, he, he flips his, he, he you know, uses his totem, which is the, the, the little um, spinner, and it's, you know, it's going, and he sees his kids, and then it's like, obviously it's not a dream because his kids, you know, he turned, you know, you can see his kids' faces finally, and you know he's finally there. Everything, you know, he, the the Saito makes the call. You know, even after, even if his brain is like, or his mind is like ninety years old, he still remembers. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he makes it through customs, and Michael Caine takes him to his house, and he sees his Michael kids. Kane. Michael Caine takes him, you know, takes Cobb to his house, and and uh, he flips the thing, and then he he just doesn't even check though. And that's the thing. Like, I think he realized he was fine. I personally do not think it was a dream at all. And a lot of people are like, well, was it a dream? And I understand that Christopher Nolan, likes, he likes to play with you. And I remember being in the theater watching it, and I am inching at, as it's going, as the spinner's going, that last shot of the movie, and I'm inching out of my seat just a little bit more, just towards the screen, just with a smile on my face. And then it goes, zoom. And, you know, the music hits like a little note. And I'm like, ah, like that. And the cr- and the people in the theater are just like, oh, man, that was fucking, what? And it's like, I don't need to know officially. The movie earned that shit. Yeah. It, it, it is cathartic, I think. I thought it was fine, even though it, it is technically hanger, kind of. Like, it, it's, it leaves it ambiguous, but it is cathartic in a way. Um, it, I think that's the intrigue, though, right? Like, so yes. we're, again, we're talking about this, this, these factors. I mean, yes. that's the intrigue because yes. it resolves literally everything else. Yes, everything else is taken care of. Everything else is fine. They they succeed in their mission to implant the idea in the guy's head about his dad. They uh, they they make it. They they succeed somehow through the dream within a dream within a dream within a dream and all the shit, all the levels they had to go to. The movie's exciting as hell, and all the way up until the end. And honestly. It's a. It wasn't a fucking dream. The the totem started to wobble. Yeah. Right at the very end, it was. It was I, I think Christopher Nolan was just. I think he just wanted to fuck with. I people. think he was fucking with everybody. Yeah. I think at the end, like he I'm really almost knew. a little bit annoyed that he decided oh, to include that. I'm at not the annoyed end there. at all. I remember leaving that theater and I'm like, the dude made, he made from '05. I've seen every Christopher Nolan movie, so like. Wait, shit! I take that back. I've not seen the one that the movie he made right before he made Memento. So. Following. Yeah, I've not yeah. seen that one. So Inception is probably my favorite Nolan mil- movie, start to finish. Mm-hmm. Through and through, it's the most fun movie that he has. It's the most intriguing. Yeah, I know The Dark Knight Rises is probably the most popular. It's also it's also so 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 amazingly well done and well acted. But Inception, from the very beginning to the very end, is just a thrill ride. It's aged so well. It hasn't aged a bit. It's perfect. So um, Give me your number two, All man. right, so my number two, and I feel like I didn't f- quite finish what I was going to say about Blade Runner because I forgot. Was just, you know, that's the way it is where we get so tied up on this thing. This the, is why it's called the spiel, man, well, well, the movie spiel. Right, but so but so it actually, the segue here is pretty good because so there's a, there's a sort of a juxtaposition, I think, between the ending of Blade Runner and the ending of The Truman Show. And really, actually, to be honest, the ending of Blade Runner and the ending of most films. But the ending of Blade Runner... If you look at Truman Show and Blade Runner in the same way, it's really it's a conversation between two people is the real ending. Right. right. And so, so the, your number two film is Right, is is the Truman Show. Well, say something, goddammit. You're on television. You're live to the whole world.
In case I don't see you. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> yeah. So the ending of Blade Runner, I like the fact that the guy who's the perceived villain throughout the entire film, in fact, is really the hero, and yeah. that's Roy Batty. So in the Truman Show, we're watching the hero be torn down the entire film, mm -hmm. and he finally, his arc is so fulfilling at the end there. From a superficial perspective, Peter, we were putting him on a boat when, you know, obviously the whole idea of the way they imprisoned him was by convincing him that water was bad because mm -hmm. his dad died at sea. Yeah, that's a it's cathartic. But what's particularly cathartic there is that we're actually, the, the Truman Show, the thing about the Truman Show and it being about faith, I see that ending there as in what other context would it ever be grounded in reality that you could have a conversation with God? Because that's actually what happens at the end of the Truman Show. Yep. He's having a conversation with the only thing, the only deity mm -hmm. that he would ever truly be able to comprehend because this man literally both passively and actively controlled his life. Very, very well done, Ed Harris part. Uh -huh. And I think the offer, the temptation that is offered to him to remain behind in this fictional reality, I never considered for a possible, like, like even in that moment, the, the drama of, of that moment isn't about Truman considering staying behind. It's, right. it's not really that. The actual drama is how is he going to reject Ed Harris's godlike character? Because uh -huh. you know he's going to. Oh, yeah. Because you know at this point he has, he has recognized that he's not living a real life. Yeah. And what he wants more than anything else is to feel something real. I mean, that's that's shown to us throughout the entire film. So it checks off every single box. Catharsis, resolution. There's an element of intrigue that you desire because the film ends with this massive great adventure is that his real life is about to begin. Uh -huh. And he has to adapt to the real life. And, uh -huh. and had Peter Weir ever wanted to or Jim Carrey ever wanted to, I think you could have done a marvelous character piece a sequel to the Truman uh -huh. show that would have been really, really interesting to explore what happens to Truman in, in reality and, and the difficulty and the PTSD that he's likely going to experience. Oh my God. And there's so many great in the Truman show. There are so many great little nudges at capitalism, little nudge in the ribs over consumerism, yep. little nudge in the ribs over how we consume media. And this is back in 1997 or 98, 98, even back then, uh -huh. it's very, very, the foreshadowing behind how we would consume media. I mean, they are hanging on his every word. Uh -huh. His fans, the people watching in the bathtub and the old women watching on the couch and yep. the people watching at the bar. I mean, this is literally so, so telling of what's to come. But then it also, I like one of the nudges against like consumerism is how he leaves and then literally the people are just like, oh, what else is on? And it's and it's meta as hell. And it's uh, it, it it really see it's hard for me to really relate to that specifically. I was eleven, turning twelve in nineteen nineteen ninety eight, and uh, I just you know I was a kid, so it's hard to it's hard for me to think about it. But like now it's like yeah, uh, I was so invested in Game of Thrones. Then Game of Thrones ended, and I'm not talking about the quality of the series, but right. the game Game of Thrones ended. I don't give a shit. There's shows that, you know, you look back finally, it's like, oh, that was a really good one. But I don't need to, I don't, I, I've never gone back and rewatched a series all the way through. I know people who have, lots of people do. And I have, and I've done it with Game of Thrones. I can't. I just, no series can do that. I can go back and watch little bits of funny things that I've seen, but I cannot, like Parks and Rec, I can pick up just about sure. an episode or something like that. But I can't watch things all the way through again. I, I had a really hard time not putting this at number one because I also think that what the Truman Show does, mm -hmm. unlike 
probably the other... The closest thing to it would be Batman Begins on this list in terms of where it falls in the Sorkin scale, sort of closer to the middle portion. Okay. You know, because there's that element of sort of cheesiness, earned yeah. cheesiness, if you will. Uh-huh. And the Truman Show, it's very stage-like. I mean, he literally, he's on a stage. Right. You realize that he's reached the end of the world, and he's on a stage, and he takes a, he takes a fucking bow. Yep. Like, he's trolling. He and figured Harris, it out. And... He's trolling the audience, but at the same time, in a manner of speaking, he also has enough. There's an element of almost, rather than, you know, think about how a real person might react there. Like, there are probably a lot of people who would react with elements of get me the fuck out of here or mm-hmm. elements of anger. And Truman taking that bow is almost very meta in a way as well, because yep. it's basically him saying this is the end. Yep. And, and you know, this is the series finale. This is the end of the film. It's a really, really great. It's um, a good movie. Yeah, it's a great film. It, holistically, I think from start to finish, sure. it's one of my all time favorites. I absolutely love that ending. And I flirted with it as my number one for obvious reasons. Uh-huh. So, Ryan, without further ado, we are at the top spot. My number one movie, my number one movie ending is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. You had to get that you had to get that in there. I mean it is the official title. I love that movie so much. Uh, I have a plan. (laughs) Monsieur adore Stanley Kubrick to certain extents. I have not seen every Kubrick movie. I know there's only like 10 of them, but I haven't seen all of them. Um, but this movie in particular, it's it's his it's his comedy, essentially. It, I think it's the first major movie to have a lead actor play three roles or whatever. So Peter Sellers, he's President Merkin Muffley, which are, which are kind of euphemisms for uh, vagina. <laughs> like he's a big pussy, like he's a pushover. Anyway, uh, then he's British Captain Mandrake, and he's also Doctor Strangelove. He's a, like a German Nazi science officer who, well, he's a former Nazi, and he's the science officer for President uh, President Muffley. He also keeps referring to the president as Mein Führer, which is fucking great. <laughs> but um, the ending is basically they're trying to get the bomb out of the doors. They're out of range. They're the basically the mission is just going to happen. Right. All the attempts to stop it are failed. The president calls the, the president of the USSR and he's talking to him. And the guy's like, his, <laughs> Dimitri, the president, he calls, he calls him Dimitri. They're on the phone. President Muffley's talking to Dimitri. And he's like, you know, one of our renegade, one of our, I'm sorry, one of our generals, he just went, a, you know, a little funny. No, you know, funny. And it's like, and it's like, I think he's drunk. <laughs> it's just great. And, like, he thinks the the, pre- the Russian president is drunk. It's so good. But, no, so Slim Pickens, the, the iconic um, the iconic uh, the, picture, oh, yeah. Slim yeah. Pickens, it, he has two movies that are just great, this and Blazing Saddles. And he's riding the fucking bomb all the, with his hat off, all the way down to, 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 to just to explosion. And uh, and then Dr. Strangelove, like, after, you know, after that happens – you know, Doctor Strangelove announces he has some plan to, you know, get everybody to a safe place, and then all of a sudden, for I don't remember the exact reason, but he stands up. He's in a wheelchair. Mein Führer, I can walk. Like this whole thing, and then the movie ends with footage of, you know, I think it's like stock footage of nuclear mm-hmm. explosions. And it's uh, Vera Lynn's "We'll Meet Again." Right? Vera Lynn. We'll meet again. Yeah. Don't know where. Don't know when. And that's it. The movie ends with the world ending, and it's just. 
Holy shit, I love that movie so yeah. much. And it's just so funny. So there's certainly resolution in that one. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a resolution. Cathartic? Resi- you know what? Cathartic doesn't matter when you're, z- when you're, when you're uh, zapped to death when by a nuclear explosion. everybody dies. When everybody dies, who gives a fuck? Right. <laughs> wow, you have a lot of everybody dies in your top five. Oh my god, I do. You've, now that I'm thinking about it. There's a fair it. bit of genocide in your top uh, five. Oh, no, there's just two. No, but not everybody dies in Inception. Well, yeah. To but be I'm... fair, I don't think really anybody dies except for all the dream dudes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> still. Still. Everybody dies in, Inse- in, in Infinity War and everybody dies in uh, Strange right. Love. Like, literally everybody right. dies. But it, it, was, it came out at a time. It was so poignant because the Bay of Pigs was about to happen. Like, nuclear war was the biggest threat. Mm-hmm. And this movie comes out and just says, eh, it could happen. <laughs> So laughing in the face of death is, is yeah. just it's yeah. something. Yeah, hide under your chairs, kids. Hide under your desks. I, I wish I had the courage to laugh in the face of death. Yeah. I really wish I could. So similar time period, slightly after, from that generation of auteurs who were real big on, on you know, kind of uh, bucking the studio system before eventually becoming the studio system. Yep. Steven Spielberg's Jaws. The greatest, for me, my all-time favorite film ending, Mm -hmm. and I think it had a huge influence on Mm -hmm. so many film endings after, including particularly Star Wars. And look, it's not unique that the thing blows up at the end. That had been done before. Bridge on the River Choir. The fucking bridge blows up. Yep. This has been done before, but what makes Jaws, I think, so particularly unique about the big the big thing exploding at the end there is that, first of all, we barely see the thing. Like, like Jaws can be described as a horror film or a thriller. It can be described as an adventure film. It, it qualifies under so many of these different genre benders. And what's particularly, I think, cathartic, the most cathartic thing about this is that there's never really any threat to the shark at any point in this film. Like, throughout the film... I'm always thinking to myself, like, this fucking shark's going to win. Yeah, he's unstoppable. Like, it's just an unstoppable killing machine. Uh-huh. It's going to win. Uh-huh. It it eats Quint. Oh, my God. It eats Quint in a very violent for the I 70s. I learned something when I watched that. So when you get to the end of this film, what you're realizing is that these guys weren't particularly qualified for this mission. No. You know, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, we're sending in our best and brightest. It was basically... This is what we've got. Mm -hmm. And this won't be the end of the world if they don't survive this. But this is their personal story. This is Mm -hmm. their Moby Dick, right? And you think that Chief Brody is alone and on his own. And we don't, at this point, we we do not know. The audience does not know that Hooper is still alive. Uh Hooper, quit playing with yourself. We don't know that he's still alive at this point. I, for the record, was it Robert Shaw? Yes. He's fucking fantastic. His entire performance in that movie he did while he was wasted. I'm sure. He was drunk as shit. Shark's in the water. Uh You're in the water. They were all wasted when they did that scene, too. The Indianapolis? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a f- incredibly like a powerful black scene. Black is like a right. doll's eyes. Show me the way to go yeah. home. So it's man versus nature, and it's not a it's not a terribly original story, but no. uh, but uh, on film at that point, 
and this is where Spielberg is is in many ways sort of the forerunner to James Cameron only by a few years. Uh-huh. But he was desperately interested in making that shark look real. And I actually don't agree with a lot of the criticism that the shark doesn't look real. Shark looks great. I think the shark looks awesome but in they, Jaws. They, it, but when they were filming it, it was a nightmare. I'm sure it looked horrible when they were filming. Yeah, that, that in, they said it was just a big piece of shit, and it, right. and it was nobody really filmed on the ocean like that before. The shark kept malfunctioning. It was over budget. It was out. It was way beyond the time mm-hmm. that they were supposed to have it done. Yeah, it's a miracle I, that movie I, even came out. I know, and I love watching how things kind of come back around. So I love that you've got this now. Jaws will be celebrating its 50th anniversary here in in another couple of years here. But here we are, global pandemic going on, and people are, are quoting the uh, the mayor uh, mm-hmm. of, of, I can't even think of the town at the moment, because um, I don't think it's Martha's Vineyard. It's uh, Amity, Amity It is Amityville. Amity. Amity. It's Amity. Amity means friendship, Chief. I could I could go on. I, I might have to I watch Jaws when I go home. I, need, I might need to it's as well. It's so good. I want to show my son, and he's five. Right. I want to show him Jaws. I, are you sure he's ready for Jaws? Fuck no, he's not. Yeah. He's going to be scarred. Yeah, Jaws is... After Jaws, wait, how long did it take you to say, I'm willing to go back out on open water? Oh, dude, I'm still freaked out by it. Right. Even though you have more better chance of getting struck by lightning than yeah. being attacked by a shark. Right. So, And, and also, I in my, in my age at this point in my life, I, I am such an appreciator of nature. Yeah, sometimes unfortunate things happen. But if you, know, if you see a, shark, a great white shark in the ocean and you're there next to it and you have the ability to get out of the water, then get the fuck, just get the fuck out of the water. Right. But just don't end up in its line of sight but even if you do it's highly unlikely it's going to attack you it usually knows anyway point being though and this is where i'm going to wrap this up here is that you've got the big boom yeah the big boom is Uh is what i think all movie endings are really aspiring for and that's what every superhero movie is aspiring for it's why the force awakens copied the original Star Wars. It's why Star Wars boom. blew the fucking dust Right. Up. It's the big boom. It's the boom. And the tension mounting in in and of itself, that scene where he's he's trying to load the weapon and and he's like, you know, blow up. And it's and it's so well made. It's so well edited. The John Williams score in the background is great. I think that movie was up for four or five Academy Awards. One was Best Picture, and I think it won everything else it was up for. It was up for sound, score, and editing. Yeah. Because those three things made that movie as good as it was. Yeah, yeah, Robert Shaw's performance was was astoundingly good. The movie is endlessly quotable. Um, it is scary as fuck. But all of that is only because, like, the, 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 the tension in that movie is it is so it, taut. That's the word you're looking for. Yeah. Taut. And uh, he's got the he's got the the rifle trying to get it gets it loaded. He's on the ship. It is going under. He's on the the like the mast or whatever. Just it's sinking. He's only got a couple of shots left. He's only he's he's so close to the water. He's almost he's it just builds up, builds up, builds and it's, up, builds it's up. It's not abstract at oh, all. I'm like it is, it is pretty it. clear. Oh yeah. Like it's it's him or the shark. Oh hell yeah. There is no there is no middle ground. That here. shark was gonna fuck him up right. if, he, if he missed. Right. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's a great it's a great ending. So it's just I think and that's where that's where I was actually Jaws that made me think about catharsis more than anything else uh-huh. because to me in the history of film there is not a more cathartic ending than the end of Jaws. You can make an argument for the very first Star Wars, but I, I can, I, yeah, like I will it's, give it's you yours. that moment of because again, I think that ending may not exist without nope, Jaws, without Spielberg and Lucas's friendship, yep. and to begin the music with. too, right? 
And the editing. I mean, it's almost it's almost verbatim. I mean, literally, blowing up of the Death Star is just a bigger version of blowing up this fucking shark. Yeah. I want to know how much the editors of Star Wars were watching Jaws as they were editing Star Wars and <laughs> fixing George Lucas's giant fucking mess. Uh, so you were right, by the way. Uh, it won for Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, and Best Sound, and man. was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. What the he hell was, did it lose to that year, does it say? It lost to, actually, and I will say, it's. I, I don't agree with its loss, but at least it's an excellent film as One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, God damn. Okay, so uh, that's it. That's Our top five is done. Jaws, I mean, because, again, this is just, for me, where Jaws wins amongst all of these, because I think yeah. all of these hit, you know, they fall in a certain era area mm-hmm. in the Sorkin scale. They are all holistically great films. Yep. Like, we didn't pick a film that wasn't good, that had a great ending. I mean, they're good to us. If you right. don't like them, then I don't care. So, actually, I would say, you know what the weakest part of Jaws is? What? Hands down, the weakest part is the intrigue. Yeah. There's not much intrigue after it's over. After it's over, yeah, there's no hype. Right? They, they, I don't think anybody expected Jaws 2. They just made it because it, it was the highest grossing movie of in of all time when it came out. Right, and it feels kind of appropriate for how much you and I talk about blockbusters. That's sort of like the ultimate block, the granddaddy that's the original of blockbusters. blockbuster. Yeah, yeah is is here. So um, uh-huh. I'm thrilled to to go through. The, uh, this was I was been looking forward to this one movie endings for a while. Yeah, so. this is a good one, and I'm really glad you picked Jaws because I'm not gonna lie, it, it it just for some reason it escaped me when I was making when I was just going through all my lists. And when you, you brought up Jaws, I'm like, oh, that's perfect. I can't put it on my list now, just at the very least for sheer, sheer variety's sake. But that is – Jaws is, I think, unquestionably one of the – is unquestionably one of the greatest movie endings of all time. And I don't think anybody can really make like, – you can make a strong case that it, things can tie it and all of that. You know, this is the same as – just as good an ending as Star Wars, is just as good an ending as even Endgame or whatever. You can make these cases, but Jaws set the tone – for, for how blockbusters should be, it set, it, it, and it set the tone for how movies really should end, and, and for just sheer excitement and being a fucking thrill ride. That movie is one of the most thrilling movies ever, and it ages, even though it's in the 70s, and it has some kind of parts where it's a little, it just kind of bogs down a little yeah. bit, which is fine. Once you get, like, once Richard Dreyfus shows up, once Quint shows up, and spe- especially when they're finally out on mm-hmm. the water... Oh my god! Yeah. That movie is just—it is just—it's a mile a minute. So, uh, really quickly, a kind of a quick hitter. I do want to talk about some of our honorable mentions. Okay. So, very, very quickly, I'm going to tell you that I. I so, just from your top five, I had Inception in my top ten. Cool. But then, outside of that, I also wanted to give love to Interstellar because very I good. fucking love that movie. Yep. But getting away from from Christopher Nolan flagellation here, Terminator and Halloween, I believe both deserve. Uh, Terminator ser- one. Terminator one. Okay. For, for the for their endings. So I love the original Terminator because, and I ha- the reason I'm including Halloween here is because I consider this a genre bender that is, I don't know that, that Terminator could exist in its form without Halloween, so right. I have to give them both credit. Yeah, because Terminator is a slasher movie without a slasher. Right. It's a, a slasher with this robot. With a robot. Right. shoots people. But what I love about the ending of that is, so you've, you've got Sarah Connor in, in Mexico at that point. You've got this this really horrible special effects storm in the, in the foreground, and it looks ridiculous, but it's the symbolism of the storm that is what is important. Terminator right. has a lot of things that don't age very well from a spe- uh, special effects standpoint, yeah. whereas Terminator 2 still looks great. Uh-huh. Uh, but I love that ending of the little boy takes the photo, uh-huh. and it winds up being the photo that, that winds up in the hand of Kyle Reese. Uh-huh. It's the photo that he identifies Sarah Connor with. That's really, really good. And it, it just helps that um, Linda Hamilton yeah. is so fucking good as She's Sarah good. Connor. You're a Terminator fucker. Right. <laughs> so I, I, the Terminator and Halloween, just a quick shout-out in my... In my um, Honorable mention, and then from a happy ending perspective, because because really good, because by those by the way those are really big on the intrigue, mm-hmm. like those are really really big. If you want to talk about a happy ending, 
I'm going to give a quick shout out, and I'm all I'm going to say uh, is just riding off into the sunset. And I know that it's borrowed from Indiana Jones and many, many westerns, but I fucking love Brendan Fraser's The Mummy. That's I a good one. fucking love that. That movie is actually great. Yeah, it actually took me by surprise when I saw it. Cause I thought it was going to be stupid. Right. And then I watched it. And I'm like, dude, this is like a swashbuckling, like Indiana Jones esque adventure. So I'm curious about some of your some of your honorable mentions. Oh God, my honorable mentions were mostly yours. They were really? mostly, mostly, okay. yeah. I mean, when I think about it, Halloween's a good one, and that was in there, and I, I did kind of think about it because I was, it was one of the first. I've seen Halloween a dozen times, the original one. I've seen the sequels, <laughs> which are dog shit. Interstellar was up there. I was thinking about that one. I did, I did think about the Prestige. I kind of brought up everything that I wanted to, that I was thinking about. Then I was thinking about just, I don't know why, but my brain just goes to these weird places where it's like, remember the the ending to the movie Happy Gilmore, and it's, uh, it ends with Tuesday's Gone. The same as the movie begins, uh, and yeah. he gets the house back. And when I was a kid, Happy Gilmore was like my go, one of my go-to movies to just make me feel really good. I don't know. I just felt really, really. I always feel good when I watch that movie because it's just so, it's just so low stakes yeah. in a way. And I don't really care. And it introduced me to Tuesday's Gone, and that's one of the greatest songs ever written, and it's really cool. Um, but no, a big, a big honorable mention for me was Toy Story Three. Toy Story Four was so un, it was so unnecessary. Toy Story 4 was so unnecessary that it did not need it just it, I didn't want I it. still haven't seen Toy Story 4 for that Let reason. me tell you something about Toy Story 4. It it is so necessary in a way. It, it it really is good. It does end very well. But Toy Story 3 and I could have used this as a perceived saga finale. Everybody thought it was going to be, you know, it ended, you know, it's 10 years between yeah. 3 and 4. But Toy Story uh 3 hit me so fucking hard like a ton of bricks and it really closed up that whole story that didn't even need really closed up they could have just ended it after toy story one but toy story three i was bawling my, my right. eyes out my little my lip was quivering i was so, so sad it so, was the end of my um it was basically the end of my childhood right oh mm-hmm. i wonder if i could pinpoint that we'll have to do a sec an episode on that at some point one quick thing since you brought up adam sandler i actually had an adam sandler film on my honorable mention list what was it? The Wedding Singer. Okay. Because it's ridiculous and it's campy. Like, that's on the 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 very, very... And that's a fun movie to right. turn your brain off like, to, yeah, too. Like, yeah, on the Sorkin scale, that's at the uh, that's on the complete opposite end of the mm-hmm. spectrum of, of our social network. But it's it's one of my favorite Sandler movies. So, a, yeah. anyway, we must ask Quentin for forgiveness before we go. Well, you can do the honors. And I'll, I have one, too. I need to beg my... I need to beg his forgiveness as well. You're begging for Quentin's forgiveness. I love, I love begging for Quentin's forgiveness, especially because you actually referenced mine earlier in this episode. Did I? So forgive me, Quentin, for I have sinned. I have never seen The Sixth Sense. Holy shit! Here's the thing. Horror you don't films, need to now. Horror films and, like, I know, because I know, I, I know the big twist. I know the big twist. Well, you could. Yeah, no, watch it. It's not a terrible movie. At all. It's a good movie. You probably get sucked into it. It's going to be tough for me to take Haley Joel Osment seriously what after happened? his no, he's stint great on in Silicon that. Valley, though. I, oh, he does shit like that all the time. I know. I he's know. great. He's like He always pops up in things. America's him his, sweetheart, Haley Joel Osment. He's adorable. He's still adorable. I don't care. He was in a show called What We Do in the Shadows just yeah. recently, and he's fantastic. He's he's a, he's like adorable, and he's like pudgy. He's got this beard, but he's got a lot of charisma. Mm-hmm. That's something that Haley Joel Osment's always had is charisma. He disappeared for a while, but now he's coming back, and I, I really enjoy I enjoy him in that movie. I think he was the only funny part of the Entourage movie. because. I God, never even was saw that, that. Was that bad? I didn't even bother. Very not good. That's because the last season was terrible. But I mean, anyway, Entourage is talking about a show that hasn't aged well. No, not at all. No, but Haley Joel Osment, no, no, you, you would like The Sixth Sense. And I, and what was cool about The Sixth Sense when it first came out, it wasn't spoiled for me. So I, that was one of the first surprise endings I ever saw. I was like, whoa, this is this is pretty cool. 
I feel like it, it became a shtick, and it's just it's an annoying shtick. And uh, but there was a thing on like the VHS that I watched when I rented it in night in two thousand, where they interviewed M Night Shyamalan, and he actually goes through all the clues leading up to the reveal. And if you don't mind, I'll just do it now. The color red shows up, and it, red can be a color for love. It could also be a color for death or violence. Um, it, it, the the clothes that Bruce Willis wears uh, in the beginning of the movie. When he dies, <laughs> fuck it, who cares? He wears a variation, like the sweater's off, or something, something's unbuttoned, but it's still the same clothes that he wears throughout the movie. There's no actual interaction between him and his wife. No real interaction, aside from the very beginning of the movie. And it's like all these little things that it's blaringly obvious now, when I went, like after, after watching it. And I remember being kind of irritated, my 13-year-old self, just kind of like, well, I don't ever need to fucking watch this again. I'm going to go watch There's Something About Mary for the eighth time. You know, another movie that really probably hasn't aged that well. But that's what that shtick is about, is that, you know, it, 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 it's a one-trick pony. You can't do much about it. But still, I think it's still worth a rewatch just because it is still a well-made and very well-acted movie. And I am a, dude, I'm ride-or-die Tony Collette. Tony Collette plays uh, Haley Joseph's mom in it. She was up for an Academy Award for the movie for Best Supporting Actress, and she fucking nails it. She's great in everything she does. Everything Tony Collette has ever done that I've ever seen her in, she is just you know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah, she's yeah. fantastic. Mm-hmm. She had a sh- she had a show on on uh, Showtime called The United States of Terror. Yeah, which I never saw, but oh my god! And it ended after three seasons. They canceled it because people didn't watch it. You people should have watched it. The movie deserves a proper ending. Oh, sorry, that show deserves a proper ending. My uh, forgive me, Quentin, for I have sinned. I have never seen Citizen Kane. Wow, and you know that's like that's like dialing it up to eleven right off the bat. Sure, that's uh, that's straight. Have you seen Citizen Kane? Though? I have once. Well, how about that? Yeah, pin a rose on your nose, Alex. Mm-hmm. I have watched. Uh, I always liked watching those AFI top one hundred lists. Yep, that's why I watched it. Their very first list when I was a kid, and I didn't give a fuck about it. I watched it later on, but like Citizen Kane is number one on both versions of that list. I don't, man. I just. I will watch it. I have HBO Max. It is on HBO Max. I will watch it. It is in my queue. I need to of all the movies that have been made, but I'm worried it's going to be like watching, you know, there's movies that they say, like when you watch it, like, so you're going to go and watch Sixth Sense one day, maybe, who Mm -hmm. knows. And you'll be like, well, it's a cultural whatever, I get this. Okay, so I just recently watched um, Alien for the first time, really within the last month. It, It was, you know, it was really good. It was thrilling. Aliens is far and away better, but... I liked it, but I but you see all the tropes that happen afterwards. So you're watching it through the lens of all these other tropes, and you're just like, oh, this is where this started. Oh, this is where this started. Oh, mm-hmm. this is. It's like watching Taxi Driver now, like after you already know the whole you talking to me, like all yeah. the shit. Like you you still can get engrossed in the movie, but that's my worry about so Citizen Kane. I actually think Citizen Kane has had less of an influence on the cultural zeitgeist from a like those moments, like maybe the the breaking up of the room. He, there's a great like room destruction scene that's very that's been overused in many different films, okay. including The Room. Okay. Anywho, what are our recommendations? Uh, so I was having a really hard time deciding because I'm I'm kind of torn between three films. Well, um, recommend all three of them. Who cares? Okay. All right. Figure it out. So on, uh, I watched all three of them recently. So I'm recommending this week Amistad. Oh, good. Selma. Okay. And talk to me. Very good. So the the thing that these three films obviously I've been I've been paying a lot more attention, trying to pay more attention to culturally significant 
black films and, and certainly primarily or, or even fully black casts, although I think Moonlight might be the only one with, with a full cast of, of people of well, color. Well, that's also the crew, too. So you have to think about the perspective that it's made from. Yeah. And, and you know, Steven Spielberg made Amistad. Steven yeah. Spielberg takes care in those things. I trust Steven Spielberg to do stuff like that. Then again, look, we're, we're privileged white guys. Amistad is probably, uh, of these films, it's the most problematic, but I still think it's really, really good that ending out on the water yeah. in the sunset. You know, my favorite scene in Amistad, the thing that, that I really took away, there's two things that I took away from this. I'm not saying this part is my favorite scene. It's like when they're unloading cargo because they have too much. Like, basically, just they're drowning. Yeah, they're I mean, drowning it's, it's, their, their it's, it's as fucked up a scene as I think it I've ever watched. It is one of those fucked up, like, I remember, and I'm thinking, oh, Spielberg made Schindler's List, and that is hard to get through. But it's just, it's it's a, a deft filmmaker using care, I think. I think he used a, a lot of care, but, I mean, who the fuck am I to say? But the movie is still engaging. Yeah. I think it has the right messages for anybody. And, yeah. uh, and but my favorite scene in that movie is where they're having a disagreement with the prisoners, with Jaman Unsu and all of them, and uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor is he's translating them, and he's like, why isn't this proceeding, whatever. He's like, yeah. it should. And he's like, what, what is it? He's trying there to explain is no, it. There is no word. Well, he's like, there's no word for should. Right. You either do or you don't. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's oh my a, God. I, so there, there are a lot of, like, the thing is, and I don't know if Spielberg was doing this so much on purpose mm-hmm. as it was sort of little jabs at the American legal system. Yes. One of my favorite jabs is in Lawyer the bullshit. Vein, right, where he actually says, there are two things. One, a chief cannot be replaced. Oh, yeah, that's right. They're just replacing this judge. Like, this is really fucked up. Yeah. But the second thing is that Dijman Hansu's character says, and I can't believe I'm forgetting the actual character. I just watched it. We're the worst time. people ever. Uh, seriously. But he actually says, he's like, what kind of land is this? Because, like, you as the viewer have to be thinking the same thing at this point where they have now literally won this trial twice Mm -hmm. and he still can't set them free. Mm -hmm. And he says, what kind of land is this? And, And that's that moment of, I don't even know if Steven Spielberg realized how powerful that line was going to be and how prescient that line would be and how how honestly aware really that line yeah. was so many years later so anyway Amistad, very Cinque thank Cinque. you so really quickly the ending is great Selma by the way which I think Selma. was robbed of best picture in 2015 Selma's, full disclosure I, I have not seen it I can't believe you haven't seen it it's, I don't know I really, I really think Selma was robbed of best picture mm-hmm. I thought that hands down my son was born like right when that movie came out and there was a whole thing and then just you know things happen it is on my it is in my list and I remember uh, right now it's free on Prime that's going to happen. I know yeah. it is, and it's going to happen. But I remember seeing the trailers for it, and I'm like, fuck, this is great. And uh, if they could, I never thought they could really properly cast Martin Luther King. He's, he's perfect. So Selma's great. And then Talk to Me is probably the one, if I was going to be the real film nerd here. Oh, yeah. That's the one that I would have picked here because, like, when you're in the video store, you're always trying to find something that people didn't really catch at the time. Yeah. Talk to Me, I didn't even catch it at the time now. And we're now, what, a, I think we're a full we're more that than a That came out like removed. 13 years ago. Yeah, it's 2007. Holy yeah. shit. I know, it's crazy. Dude, that movie's so good. It's yep. fucking funny. And it's like, it's it's um Taraji P. Henson yep. before she was really like famous at all. Don um, Cheadle, really. Don uh, Cheadle's uh, the man. Don Cheadle was probably the most, at the time, the most famous. Because she would tell Edgy of had just done a bit part in Children he's of Men. He's been coming in. He, he, right. well, he's English, too. So he'd right. already been doing stuff in England. Right. You know, I really can't wait for Doctor Strange 2. Because he's, you know, he's supposed to be the... Baron the, Mordo. Yeah, he's supposed yeah. To, yeah, Mordo. He's supposed to be the villain in it. Yeah. He didn't, they didn't bring him back at all for any of the other stuff, so I'm, I'm assuming that he's still around. They've been saving him. For, oh, the, I hope so. So, point being, though, is point that being. I think at this point in his career, this mm-hmm. is probably one of the biggest... I mean, he's the second lead in this film. Right, right. Also, they happen to have three films that have three great endings. Because uh, yeah. talk to me, talk to me, it's funny. I, I gave Star Trek Into Darkness a hard time because it ends with the speech. Yeah. But the thing I like about it, talk to me isn't... 
isn't a speech. It's a, it's a fucking eulogy. Yeah. That is what uh, that that's a much more powerful ending than the the mm-hmm. bullshit Star Trek into so so even though they're ending with the same concept the same speech I think where it works for talk to me is it's an actual it's a very powerful eulogy and there's a, there's an element of she would tell Edgy character is having this sort of moment of self realization because his entire character throughout the whole film he's searching for his voice mm-hmm. and in the final scene he has found his voice and he's able to deliver this eulogy so uh, anyway I know we went on for a really long time I we, love it. We could have done a whole episode on this. We're going to. Yeah, we actually we actually are. We're going to. We are going to do an episode. Something we're 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 going to hit record, and I want somebody else to explain all this shit. Yeah, because I I am. I'm going to speak. I don't really want to speak for you, Alex, but I I am in no position to explain anything. I just want to sit and listen. Yeah. So. Well, because you know what the big question that I have, because again, I go back to Mississippi Burning, and I've mm -hmm. seen. I've now I think about the criticism of that. So, what has Hollywood gotten right, and what has Hollywood gotten wrong? This is a very awkward transition now, and I really kind of regret my recommendation, but I still want to regret. I okay. still want to recommend it now, okay? Because this ain't a good transition. Now that I think about it, okay. Don't worry, I'm not recommending Lethal Weapon or anything. All right, <laughs> listen. I need a. F- Everybody needs a laugh. Uh, comedies are the best movies. I mean, that's laughter is the best medicine. With all the shit going on with with uh, cops, you know, the police officers, you know defunding the police, all of that. And then for some reason, I posted something on my personal Instagram of a picture of uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, and they're eating, like, uh, Cornetto ice cream in a cop car. They're dressed as cops. There is a movie called Hot Fuzz. If you've never seen it, it is glorious. It rips apart Point Break and Bad Boys 2 and directly references them in the best ways. It's a parody of buddy cop movies. It takes place in a little town called Samford, England. It's the safest city in the country. Mm-hmm. It's won that award I don't know how many times. And uh, it's it, so because Simon Pegg's Sergeant Nicholas Angel, is uh, he's sent out to Samford because he's making the London police look bad because he's so good at his job. He is, without a doubt, the police officer you wish every police officer was. Now, to be fair... He goes to a town, and there's a whole bunch of accidents, and people are dying. And but it's the safest town. It's it's the best town ever. There's no crime. There's it's just. I mean, there's not much crime. There's no violent crime. He's just he's there, but he's something's fishy, and all that. And he's and it's it's is just this an Edgar Wright movie. Hell right? yes, yeah. it's an Edgar Wright yeah. movie. It is the second part of the of the blood and the blood and ice cream trilogy that started with Shaun of the Dead because they're violent and because there's Cornetto ice cream that just shows up in them. So you know they're. Shaun of the Dead is the first one, and then Hot Fuzz is the second one, and uh, The World's End is the third one. And they all have their own sort of theme. And The World's End is uh, more of like an apocalyptic-type movie, obviously, but it's also a personal story about uh, alcohol addiction, uh, you know, alcoholism and things. But anyway, um, Hot Fuzz is actually very, very fun. And when you when you watch it, it's, it's you know, they're talk- they do glorify the police force, but it's not actually not called a force. They don't call it a force. He doesn't want to call it the force. It's it's the uh, the service. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's not an accident. It's it's not a it's it's not an accident. It's a collision because an accident implies whatever. It's not policeman. It's police officer because police. You know, because women can be police officers too. And it's you know, when did you want to become a policeman? Not policeman. It's officer. When did you want to become a policeman officer? <laughs> it's just the whole movie is just full of these little funny gags. And Edgar Wright is such a deft director. That dude is fucking amazing. His editing, his music choices, uh, his storytelling, everything, is, his writing, and, and the, there's a big, uh, there's a really awesome YouTube video that's really cool that shows you how how a movie, how movies really should be edited, transitions in movies, and 
and um, and just how uh, you get from scene to scene. And Hot Fuzz is actually a perfect example of how to do it originally, how to do it where it actually affects the story instead of saying, you're going to New York, and then it's a pop song in New York City. And mm-hmm. that's, it's just, it, it doesn't take the cheap way out in any which way. Um, and Hot Fuzz is a fantastic fucking movie. So I haven't heard anybody talk about Hot Fuzz in a while, and I just wanted people to watch it, and that's my recommendation. I appreciate it because I actually just saw Shaun of the Dead for the first time. God! Uh, so, uh, by the way, guys, uh, if you're joining us, if you stayed with us for all of this, this was uh, our Grindhouse double fe- I'm kidding. This was our double feature. Um, th- this is episodes one and two of the movie Spiel. Episode one, uh, saga finales. Episode two, individual film finales. But I think one of the ones that we're really excited about is what's coming up next. Stars at their worst. So our next episode is all about... I- I'm so excited for this because we've spent the last, what, four or so hours uh, and then of, editing. Of, of recording basically just waxing poetically about our favorite films and our favorite film endings. We're going to trash some A-listers. I want to fuck some people up. Yeah. I want to verbally take a sledgehammer to some of these people's careers. Yeah. So the literal but It's kind of sad cuz they can't go, they could they don't, they're not going to come around and talk shit about my no, work. No, probably not. <laughs> Stars at their worst. A-listers making so we're taking a slightly negative turn in our next episode. I don't give a shit. We hope that you'll uh, go ahead and give it a listen when you've got a chance. In the we're meantime, cool. yeah, this is the movie spiel. I'm Alex. I'm Ryan. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll be back. Bye. Bye.